cop. I did your job once. Things were simpler then. What do you want? I want to ask you some questions. What happened? I covered my tracks. Scramble the records. We were being hunted. By who? You know, there is something about that tangle of strangers. Pressed together for days with nothing in common but the need to go from one place to another and never see each other again. to the Electric Shadows podcast with me, your host Rob Daniel. As always, I'm very happy to say that I'm joined by my learned colleague, Mr. Rob Wallace. And as always, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Rob, sorry. Go oh, on. no, I was about to say, um, shall we launch straight in with the... Uh, with the we have to do shameless, shameless plugging. Plugs. Yes, indeed. <laughs> um, well, uh, shall I shamelessly plug your, you and you shamelessly plug me? I, I don't know how that... <laughs> I like this as a... Is this, is this a test of our friendship <laughs> to see how much of this shit do you remember that I say every week, Rob? I think we should. So plug away with oh, me. I've just forgotten what your Twitter handle is because... You're unwieldy. You can uh, you can read Mr. Daniel's uh, in, you know incredibly insightful erudite um, commentary on the state of film at uh, the at www.electric-shadows.com, and uh, his Twitter handle, uh, his you know in no way unwieldy Twitter handle is. You know why don't you take this one? I'll take this one, but to make you feel guilty, I know your Twitter handle. So you can read my Twittertainment at um, Rob underscore a underscore Daniel. Nothing unwieldy about that. Anyway, if you want to read some proper insightful erudite learned film criticism, then go to of all the film sites.com, which is Rob Sign. That's right, isn't it? It is Yeah, yeah, it is. yeah I did. No, I changed I was, it. I preemptively I'm gonna change it now just so that yeah, just I was waiting for you to say it's org, not dot com, it's org. But no, it's so it the, org, why would I find I don't know. So of all the film sites.com. Yes. And if you want to know what's happening on, on of all the film sites.com, then Rob is very good at tweeting things um that then link through to a site. And that can be found at at Robert M. Wallace. Yes. Yep, there you see, see. I won that. Okay, me too. I won, I won the clumsy plugs. As soon as you, as soon as you put punctuation in there, you're just... Yeah, I know, it's kind of... Right. Well, I really wanted my name. Um, but, of course, every single variant of Rob Daniel was yeah, taken, and it was... Well, you can have Rob Daniel 1693 slash A. <laughs> it's like, no, I want something that's easy and elegant. Rob underscore A underscore Daniel. Nothing wrong with that. But on the plus side, Ugh. at least we made, we made a concise start to this podcast like we were intending yes, to. Indeed. We are two and a half minutes and we haven't even talked about anything yet. And um, one more plug. So if, you, if, if you're enjoying this and you aren't locked up somewhere for your own good, um, then you can subscribe to us at iTunes. 
and we are on that other one, the Android one, and I found out the name of it the other day, and I completely forgot, and it's so mad. Um, we're on SoundCloud. We're on, on... we're on SoundCloud. We're on iTunes, and we are. And if on... you've got the Android, if you've got an Android, you know what it's called. Yes, and indeed. You should drop us a line. <laughs> Drop us a line, you know the Twitter handles, um, and yeah, tell us what, what that one is. It's something like Stitcher, but it's not that. Anyway, I don't know. But we're on it. Seamless. Um, if you want to sponsor this podcast, anyway. So today, we haven't done one of these for a while. It's been about three or four weeks. The last one we did was the London Film Festival Roundup, which was a big two-hour behemoth, but there were lots of films to get through, so it just flew by. This one, I've said we have to be a little bit more succinct, um, So, but we are going to to cover three big recent releases. So this is a bit of a roundup episode, isn't it? So Rob, what are we going to cover? We're going to, uh, should we start with, oh, so it's, it's a rich pickings between uh, Blade Runner, Thor Ragnarok, or Murder on the Orient Express. Well, I think because it came out so long ago and I am kind of having some trouble remembering everything that happened in it, let's talk about Blade Runner 2049. So Blade Runner 2049 to quickly crib the synopsis from the IMDb is a young Blade Runner's discovery of a long buried secret leads him to track down former Blade Runner Rick Deckard who's been missing for 30 years so this obviously is a sequel a belated sequel to the classic 1982 film directed by Ridley Scott in which case in which way our belated podcast is very appropriate yes indeed we are just taking the the Blade Runner vibe and running with it, and we are true to the original Blade Runner in that this is all voiceover. Because uh-huh. I, 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 uh, yeah, I think the I think undoubtedly the voiceover versions of Blade Runner are the best ones. Yes, indeed, the voiceover version is. I think the Blade Runner twenty forty nine suffered because there was no voiceover in it. We of course jest, but so Blade Runner was a film that came out in nineteen eighty two really just revolutionised the way that sci-fi cinema looked. It was incredibly prophetic in terms of, 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 of the ways that corporations would really dominate the city landscape with their big adverts. And also the influence of the East, because you have that iconic shot of the, of the geisha in the Coca-Cola advert. And on the, on the side of a skyscraper is a spinner, a flying police car goes by one of the best shots. I think that shot completely sums up all of sci-fi cinema. It's just such a wonderful shot. And that showed, I think, the emerging fascination with Japan at the time. And I think now you can say that it's, it's yeah, the same for Hong Kong and uh, for China as well. And Blade Runner, of course, is, I think, yeah, one of the great movies. I think it's a masterpiece. Um, not so much the voiceover version, which was heavily compromised and they, they tacked on a voiceover. Sure, we're not... This is not you know, news to anyone listening, but they tacked on a voiceover because they thought that uh, the audiences just wouldn't just wouldn't know what, yeah, what was going on. I mean, the voiceover was in the original screenplay, in the original Hampton Patcher screenplay. Yes. It, it was included because he was very much leading into the film noir. The original screenplay was almost sort of a one room. That's style. right. Um, and, uh, yeah, they essentially, I mean, they used, uh, they used to call it, what did they call them? They used to, uh, Hampton Patcher was, you know, did many, many redrafts at his own, at his own pace. And he used to, to refer to him as happen faster. Yes, that's right. It was, and uh, and yeah, essentially, Ridley Scott did kind of take ownership of the project and brought on uh, David Peoples. Yep. To and yeah, and really sort of created the Blade Runner aesthetic that has been so hugely influential. Um, and yeah, the, this new the new film 
has to somehow take that and update it and find a way to make it, you know, without the issue being that since then so much has been influenced by it. You know, films like, you know, we, we talked about Ghost in the Shell earlier this year, mm. that it's hard to do it without feeling like you're ripping it off, even when you are, even when you're making a sequel to it. And I think one of the film's most notable successes is that Denny Villeneuve uh, managed to do that, managed to take the aesthetic and the, uh, of the original and yet add something to it and sort of find a slightly different take on. I think, yeah, that's interesting because... I think the Blade Runner has become... It was such an evocative world that was created. And it really predicted, I think, even though I'm sure that New York at the time... Well, yeah, New York at the time. Actually, London at the time as well was very multicultural. But it really foresaw a um, a world in which there were lots of you know, different cultures and races that were living side by side. And it's one of those things that it's so... it It's such an evocative world that's created that it's become that you can say to someone this is like Blade Runner and people just kind of you know, know the mood that you're going for. Like when I used to live in Japan, Shinjuku, which we'll go to next year when we go to Japan. Oh, exciting. Rob and I are going on holiday to Japan next year. I so think, you just said that too. Uh, we should try and do something, record something while we're in Japan. Oh yes, that's a great idea. Well, let's do that. Right, there will be a Japanese podcast. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so Ooh, that's, that's quite exciting. Yeah, though. it is, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I was in Shinjuku uh, and in... Shinjuku, there's a um, there's an area called Kabukicho, and all the Japanese people say don't go there because that's where all the yakuza are, and they and you'll kind of like you'll know, be murdered and stuff like that. And it's like, oh well, yeah, it sounds quite exciting. <laughs> Let's go and have a look at all the yakuza and all the kind of like you know seedy strip bars and stuff. And if you live in London, you go to Kabukicho, and it's like, I'm sorry, this is not threatening. Um, but what it is when I went there, um, it was actually hammering down with rain. And there was just loads of neon around because you're in Shinjuku and it's just artificial daytime there because there's so much neon and so much light. And it's just Blade Runner. Yeah, me and my mate just said, this is just Blade Runner. And then, in all fairness, you said that the moment you stepped off the plane in Japan and didn't stop saying it for your entire time yeah, out. That's right. Because <laughs> you're such a nerd. Steeped in, steeped in pop culture that the only frame of reference you have is this film because you have no imagination. Well, that's partly true, but because um, I also said it this year when walking out of a film at Fright Fest on a Saturday night in Leicester Square in London, and there was some Harry Krishna going by, and loads of um, youths on these bikes, on the Boris bikes, and they were one sort, and it was just so hectic and just so loud and bright, and, and it was all night time. I thought, well, yeah, London is now Blade Runner as well. So I think the Blade Runner is incredibly influential, and it is one of the great films. So we have Blade Runner 2049. Made 35 years after the original, set 30 years after the original, and yeah, was was looking forward to it. Um, it's good, not great, would be my take on it. I think it's at two hours and 44 minutes, I would say it's too long for the story that it has to tell. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of quiet in there. But I'm not sure that there's much going on during the moments of quiet. I it, I would be interested to see a version half hour shorter to see if any of the of the transcendental import that apparently director Denny Villeneuve and writers Hampton Fancher and Michael Green um, put into the movie. I'd say I I rewatched Blade Runner really recently. I say I think I, I think I was on a very sort of similar take to you in terms of it being slightly overlong and slightly. I think one of the, uh, the th- sequel, yeah, the sequel. One, one, one of the things the sequel is going for it is that it is so rich, 
thematically and so open to interpretation that it does kind of give itself an out in terms of if you know if you're talking to somebody who who liked it more than you did they can you know they can always say well I obviously got more from it than you did yeah in which case I I think I obviously got more from it than you because actually having seen Blade Runner again and I watched a bit of um actually watched a bit of Dangerous Days the documentary on it which is great um uh, for example, um, and it's just stuff that makes it, I think, uh, maybe a more interesting experience, like the opening sequence. Are we, are we going to talk about it, Blade Runner 2049, a little bit? Little, any spoilers? Are we going to... I think we can give some spoilers for the first you know, half hour of the film or something, yeah. it's, because you've got another two and a quarter hours of film to go. Well, talking about the first half now, the scene in which the Dave Bautista character uh, goes home and sort of, you know... All of that is taken, not quite exactly, um, from the from a planned opening sequence for the original film. That's right, yeah. Which was uh, storyboarded yeah. and... Yeah. And just sort of seeing that. And again, that, I know that's sort of geeky. That doesn't actually influence the level of actually, or quality of the actual film. But it is one that, stri- that has actually stayed with me. Um, and that I found myself thinking about. And I'm not... I do think it's occasionally a bit obscure for its own good and... And I do, and I think the ending, especially, will be interpreted and reinterpreted. There are already so many theories about there, exactly about exactly what it means and how deep you can go and how much of it is. And I think, and I, and however much you know, again, it does kind of inure it from criticism. I do like how how how, how the film encourages that, and how the film in its existence. One of the things we worried about is that it was going to ruin the whole ambiguity of the original. Yeah, which, which I think, which I don't think it does. I think it does a bit, but we can't really talk about that without spoiling things. And in fact, we cannot talk about that without spoiling things. But of course, the original, because the original, you can read different things into it. But there is, it is a a, a film that has themes and it has a story and it says this is what I'm about. And the only real mystery to the original film is, is Deckard a replicant or not? Is he one of the artificial people that, as his job, he has to, he has to hunt down. And retire because these artificial people that they're building to basically yeah use as slave labor um, only have a short lifespan. And of course, in the original, it's all about a bunch of rogue replicants who are trying to get more life. Um, and and I but and you think well actually in the original it's open to interpretation. So Woody Scott said yes he is, and Harrison Ford said no he's not, and. There are certain things. There are certain things. There's a love scene in the original that's very, very problematic in terms of how consensual it is, or maybe not, with um, with Deckard and Rachel. Rachel, played by Sean Young. And it's like, well, that is only really okay if they're both replicants, because they would then, of course, be about three-year-old children or something. He doesn't have the emotional maturity to know what he's doing if he's real. If he's like an, you know, if he's a guy, then that's a bit, a bit rapey. Um. But there are certain things where you can say, actually, it, it, it makes no sense for him to be a replicant. Because um, the whole thing is about uh, a person you know, learning the true value of humanity through through something that he originally saw as not being completely human. And that's something, actually, weirdly, that um, uh, Rutger Hauer was quite imp- instrumental in bringing into it. Mm-hmm. Because I sort of watched an, an interview with him recently and said that all the, sort of the human moments, all the smiles and the kiss, all the, the little moments that suggest that Roy Batty is more than this killing machine... Were kind of introduced by him. Yeah, indeed, it was. Uh, I think it's one of those things where Ridley Scott has a has a reputation for being an incredibly exacting and demanding and precise director. But it sounds like when he has got someone very talented, he recognises that talent and basically says, "I will let you do what you want with your character." And you get tears in the rain out of it. So. You get, yeah, indeed, you get one of the you know, one of the finest moments of cinema. And that's what I didn't get from Blade Runner twenty four to nine. I did not get any finest moments from cinema. What I got was. 
And I think I just have to now say that Denis Villeneuve is just a very, very competent journeyman director who makes really interesting movies about big themes, but I never think he really lands them to be masterpiece. I've never actually He's thought... a B-plus director. I think he is. I think it's one of those things where, you know, Sicario was an interesting film, really good first hour, completely ridiculous ending where it just turned into the Bourne legacy. You're not even one of the Matt Damon, or yeah, Jason Bourne, but not one of the good Bourne films. Arrival, I thought, was amazing in parts, but the end of Arrival is like, this is either really clever, but I also think it's a little bit, oh no, we've painted ourselves into a corner, therefore we need to just yeah, get out of it, and this is how we can get out of it. You're using something that was done in Bill and Ted's excellent adventure as well, but yeah, I won't spoil it. And what else has he done? I never saw that one where it was Jake Gyllenhaal playing two of them. Enemy. Oh, he did also do Prisoners. Prisoners, yes. Yes, indeed, and Prisoners was really, really good, but the ending, I just thought, yeah, he just... Incendiary is, yeah, his first film. That is his best film. That actually, I think, is a really, really great film. And, yeah, the whole way through, I think that's a great film. He just hasn't topped his first film. Um, And this one, I thought, it was good, but it didn't... I didn't think it really looked amazing either, and I saw it at the IMAX, and... I I wasn't blown away by the look of it. No, that's the thing. I I I, I really I really liked the look of it, and I thought it was impressive, but it didn't capture me in the same way that you know. I say I, I, I you know. It's, I hope Deacons is going to get an Oscar nom for it, no doubt. He may well. This may well be his year to win, which would be a shame because it's not his best work. It's not his best work. No, I think Assassination Jesse James. I think it's his, probably his best work. Yeah, indeed. Um, and especially versus Hoyt Van Hoytmer, who I think did such astounding astonishing work on Dunkirk yeah, yeah. that you know it, it, yeah again it feels a shame that he's taking it away from sorry we're, 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 sorry, <laughs> you know, we're, we're, uh, we're reading to this you know we're predicting all this way too casually as though you know there's even going to be an Oscars this year <laughs> um, and yeah it feels a little shame that he might get a career Oscar off the back of some of the some of the best cinematography in, in another film that I've seen in, in years a career Oscar that's a really good way to put it yeah shall we get into the story of, of... Blade Runner 2049, it's, you know, we've given the plot synopsis, so I think we can spoil it now. Um, uh, so Ryan Reynolds plays, plays a replicant, whose job it is to hunt down other replicants. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And Ryan, Ryan Reynolds, Ryan Gosling, obviously. Although I would like to see Ryan Reynolds in a Blade Runner film. Yes. So Ryan Gosling, of course. He's, he's always good. I mean, he's always going to be a very, very watchable presence, and the story, so you know, Robin Wright is his boss and there's this seemingly a miracle has happened. This really weird thing that couldn't have happened has happened and he's having to investigate why why people are continuing to believe that this is a thing and who's behind it and to why, yeah, and to what end are they behind it. Um, and I just didn't think there was enough story meat there to last for three hours, to be honest. No, I found it is quite languid and it's interesting yeah. because, you know, Film noir it has traditionally been very plot driven, and but but Blade Runner as as does it sort of slow that down to a very measured no, very measured pace. Well, film noir was, was also always really mood driven. Sorry, yeah. Um, but in terms of though, there's no real, there's no solution. It's not. It's not. You know, again, we're about to say. You know, about to say it's not something you can solve. Bring up the big sleep. When, yeah, the, when right. Raymond Chandler didn't even know he'd killed the chauffeur. That's right. Or, um, what was the other one? The lady from Shanghai, when Harry Cohn, who was the head of Columbia, said, I'll, I will pay anyone in in this studio a thousand bucks if they can tell me what that film's about. 
And it's like, well, you just weren't watching it clearly then, because Lady from Shanghai is a very, very easy film to follow. It's also brilliant. And that's the thing. I just, I mean, yeah. So, so really, with Blade Runner, I mean, I kind of thought that we would have more, would have more to talk about. I just don't. I haven't. I think that it told a story. It had some amazing moments in it. Really good shot of the Atari logo. I really like the fact that it was a sequel to the world of the original. So Pan Am was still a thing, was still a corporation that was running, and that it was, um, and the communist, sorry, communist Russia was still, uh, yeah, the CCCP was still in government. And that kind of thing, I thought, well, that's interesting that you're choosing to go down that road because it's, this is sci-fi, it's alternate reality, so why not? And I thought that worked really well. Um, and there were some things with his his virtual wife. He has a, a kind of a waifu, doesn't he? That's the um, it's a Japanese thing that's coming that's coming through in terms of a virtual partner, but she will be your dream partner, and you could also get like a male version of it. And as you said, you're telling me that Ryan, Ryan Gosling, Gosling isn't the isn't the pleasure model. <laughs> yeah, it's like you could make billions if you made lots of Ryan Goslings and sold them to frustrated housewives and stuff like that. I mean, really, it's like that's and that's I think one of the biggest flaws of the film is that really he's you're so right he's not the pleasure model. He's okay. the hard bitten cop. Yeah, he's, I mean, why don't you get the hard bitten cop just to look like Dave Batista because he's huge and he won't put up any nonsense. And anyway. So um, I think one thing I did like about the film thematically was the ideas of being special. Go on. Uh, I, again, I don't. I don't think we can delve into the, to this too much about about how it is in, in some level a deconstruction of the chosen one narrative. Yes. Yes. Yeah. The... And and which ties into ideas again with technology and the rest of it of kind of, of kind of modern day narcissism and how we are all encouraged to feel like that is a good point. Yeah, there is um, that is in there, uh, but that was in. Another film I was watching recently where it was all about how how special people thought they were. I can't think what it was now. But it was something much more modest than this. And it told, and it made that point a lot quicker than this film does. But um, Do you remember the, the name of the Ryan, Ryan Gosling character in, in it? Um, not off the top of my head. K. Agent K. Oh, yes, which, of course. Which, of course, if he, if he was special, would make him special K. Yes, it does. I thought, yes, he would be special <laughs> K. I think for lots of people, uh, he is special K just because he's played by Ryan Gosling. There's also the fact there, of course, that um, yeah, K is the uh, name of the person from Kafka's The Trial yeah. and as a person who is like you're running around this bizarre maze of um, crime and bureaucracy thinking that there's something happening, and actually, what it turns out is happening is is something quite else. So, yeah, and that, it is. And, it does times the trial and quite sort of a lot. K and denoting a thousand, and there's, there's yeah. a scene in it where yeah. he's sort of looking through genetic codes, and it's all in gold, and it almost looks like sort of cuneiform script, yeah. or, like, or like you know, like the, like the Ten Commandments, and yeah, that's yeah. There's there's quite a lot of sort of biblical and uh, or sort of Judeo-Christian and sort of Mesopotamian mm. ancient. Mixing with the te- with within the modern and the idea of grandeur and the idea of scale and the idea of playing God, which is sort of the Jared Leto character, which also goes back to the original Blade Runner. And it's um, there, oh. it's that you go up in the that you ascend to the top of the pyramid. Yes, yeah, so Roy ascends to the top of the pyramid in the original Blade Runner to meet his maker go and meet, go meet Lloyd the barman. Yes, that's right. Played by Joe Turkle, isn't it? Um, who plays Tyrell? And the first thing he says, "I want more life, and I want to know answers to the big questions I've got." And it's I mean, so these things are there. It's just that I thought it wasn't. It was done in. I found this film quite ponderous and a bit and very very self important. Um, and and also we 
we're you know, trying really hard here not to give any spoilers away, but the film itself gives away the biggest spoiler on the poster, the fact that Harrison Ford's in it. I mean, he doesn't turn up until halfway through the film, and it would have been amazing if he had have been kept a bit of a secret. It's like, um, well, if he hadn't been splashed on, on the poster, but you can see them saying, well, we need to put him on there because we it won't make money. So, well... It didn't, it didn't make money. It really didn't make money. Why are you making this? That's this, right. this, is a leg- this is a legacy project. And this is underperformed as well, so maybe you should have held it back and you know, not revealed that Harrison Ford was in it. And when he turned up, I did think, oh, that's quite good. And, you know, I got a, you know, a bit of a frisson. Because there were things in this film I really liked. It's just that overall, I just thought, this, this is ponderous and it just hasn't got the story there to justify this length. This is an indulgent movie and I don't think that you can say the original is indulgent even though it has been re-released and re-edited an indulgently large amount of times. But Harrison Ford, I thought, was, was good. I mean, you know, he's always good in films, I think. Um, Jared Leto came in for quite a bit of a kicking for his performance as a, as a media Steve genius. Steve Jobs as the devil. Yes, so Steve Jobs. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Steve Jobs as more overtly the devil. As more overtly the devil. Um, I didn't think he was that bad. because I thought he was fine in it. And he's not really got that much screen time anyway. So, um, And the woman who plays the, the kind of the equivalent to Roy, she's the antagonist who's, who's hunting Kay. What was her name again? Oh, Sylvia Hooks. Yes, as it's love. As love. Yep. Um, and there's another woman in it called Joy, and it's like, oh. <laughs> I always always go back to Blue Steel, the early Catherine Bigelow, Jamie Lee Curtis film, and it's like, what's the point in having subtext when you can have text? <laughs> so the killer in that film is called Eugene Hunt, and the main male character is called Nick Mann, and she's Megan Turner. And it's all, and it's like, oh, Bugger off with these names. <laughs> and this is a this has got a bit of the blue steel naming convention to it as well. Would you want to say it's uh, an Edward James Olmos? <laughs> no. A, 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 yeah, a, a gaff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It works, yeah, because yeah. he's called Gaff. Yeah. <laughs> also, Edward James Olmos is back in this film. And it's in this film, that's right. Um, as, and yeah, I don't know, it's, it's weird. I, I only saw it once, I haven't had a chance to watch it again. It's a lot to take in on a first viewing. I was so up for this film. And I love the original. And I will watch it again, obviously, because it is an important film that you need to watch more than once. But I have to admit, on a first viewing, Blade Runner 2049 was like, I just don't think we needed a sequel to Blade Runner. But it's not a harmful sequel. No, 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 no. No, it's not that. It's See, not one. I, I think, I think... It's not Train Spotting 2, which I think is a bit of a harmful sequel. Even though I've almost forgotten that film entirely. It's, anyway... Trainspotting 2 was a film I quite enjoyed while watching and then it was one of those things that I walked out and went oh no that was a Trainspotting sequel wasn't it that yeah. should have been that should have been better than that it should have been buzzing it should have been yeah it shouldn't have looked like a yeah anyway we've talked about that <laughs> closing thoughts on Blade Runner 2049 I think it's more successful as a world building exercise and sort of a philosophy 101 major than it is albeit a very impressively shot um, philosophy exercise and uh, than it is as sort of an emotionally engaging work of cinema. There wasn't. I don't really. You don't ca- really care about any of the characters walking out of that. I completely agree. But I think that's all we need to say about Blade Runner twenty forty nine. It only took. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see you in probably be twenty forty two for Blade Runner twenty seventy nine. So yeah, that sounds. I'll be forty two or fifty two. Jesus. That, if we if we are yeah at that point they should be directing it straight into our. Frontal cortexes, aren't they? So, yes, indeed. And I'll be 
very old. I'll be 77. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Blade Runner 2049 is written, co-written by Michael Green, who also wrote Murder on the Orient Express. Seamless. Seamless. So Murder on the Orient Express... I think I should talk about this as I know everything about Poirot and <laughs> Rob is a bit of a newbie to it. That is a complete <laughs> lie. Rob is a bit of an expert on Poirot and who and lots of other things. He's, he knows his stuff. I, on the other hand, I think this was the first Poirot thing I'd ever experienced. Really? Yeah, because I've never seen never yeah. seen the original movies, never seen Death on the Nile, never saw a full episode of the Suchet series that everyone says is one of the great series of all time and yeah indeed so this was my first a to z complete experience of a poirot tale um but you're the poirot expert so after you shall i jump in with the synopsis shall we uh yeah indeed i'm gonna do my best terrible french poirot voice please oh, do no. sorry, sorry. Let's, let's reiterate poirot is belgian i cannot do a belgian accent this is going to be french and it's not gonna be good french I think that Bradder was doing pretty much a French <laughs> accent. So there you go. A Levis train ride unfolds into a stylish and suspenseful mystery from the novel by Agatha Christie, Murder on the Orient Express, tells 13 stranded strangers and one man's race to solve the puzzle before the murderer strikes again. That's not very accurate because you're never led to believe the murderer is going to strike again. Oh, yes, you are. Or like, sorry, well, but, someone gets... Yeah, um, but that's, 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 that's quite... That's sort of second act... That's like kind of, that, that, you're ne- it's never like it's a race against time. You need to figure out who it is before they do it again. Because you know, for big sections of it, everyone's just in the main carriage, and it's like, look, just nobody murder anyone else, all right? Let's just let's just nobody commit murder, all right? We've got one fucking corpse over there. Like, what if what if you've already you know shat a bed on this one? Let's just <laughs> let's just stop. Um, okay, Murder on the Orient Express, obviously Agatha Christie novel, uh, was previously ad- adapted in the early 70s as Sidney Lumet, uh, starring Albert Finney. Um, Sidney Lumet? I think you were still in... I think you were still in... Sidney Lumet. I, th- I think you were still in your pile. Oh, God, it, it's been bursting out the last couple of days, and like, I, I've been listening to um, various audiobooks. Uh, they, they are tremendous murder mysteries. Um, Sorry, they weren't Inspector Clouseau audiobooks you were listening to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that just that just feeds through. That's just my natural propensity for bumbling. Um, <laughs> very, very. You have a room, but uh, essentially, this is almost premise based on the not just the same premise, but um, story, but promised on the same sort of ideas of film as the original in terms of it's a big, glossy, starry blockbuster as far as you know a film largely confined to a train can be. Mm. Uh, in the essentially. The story, okay, the story is that the there is there is there is quite you know, there is a murder on the Orient Express, Kelso Prize, and uh, it falls to uh, the Belgian detective Hercule Poirot, uh, here played by Kenneth Branagh, who will direct the film, who just so happens to be on board to figure out who done it. Yeah, it's it's it is a classic who done it, and um, Branagh's it's kind of it's one of those it's a very well known story and quite a, a very well known a reasonably well known twist in terms of people. And did you I'm know the twist sure. going in? Well, I did, but as we discussed, only because I'd seen that Richard Herring, Herring, Herring clip. Herring. <laughs> There's a Richard Herring clip where he's dealing with a heckler and he references Murder on the Orient Express in a way that you can guess then who is the killer in the film or in the story. Um, but I'm not entirely sure it is that well known as, as who the killer is in this film. And I think if I hadn't have known, I would have been quite impressed 
because it's quite audacious. But um, but I think that yeah, when the train did it, the train did it. Yes, it was <laughs> all it was, along. <laughs> it was local murder. Um, but no, I think it's one of those where you yeah, when you find out who the killer is, it's like that. It's actually pretty yeah, pretty clever. Um, but yeah, this is a film that I thought when it started, I thought I'm really in the mood for this film because it's it's a big old fashioned kind of. Hollywood blockbuster and it opens up in Jerusalem doesn't it but I think it was filmed in um, Malta there's a definite um, oh, a Two Faces of January vibe to some of like the earlier scenes because oh, it's, all there. Yeah, it's also it's Patricia Highsmith also, yeah. also very, but... but yeah there's, uh, so he has to solve a mystery a crime has um, a crime has been committed and he has to solve it I have to say that it was a pretty obvious who done it at the um, for the opening crime because uh, who's the only person that you've really met so far other than Poirot and also for modern sensibilities it couldn't be any of the suspects because of what it would be saying about those people so um, I don't want to spoil it anyway but who cares because it was it's you know, shot on location it all looks very good it's all shot in you know, lovely widescreen really really handsomely shot as well and it just has that old-fashioned vibe. And I think that Kenneth Branagh is really good value for money. I mean, I think he's a he's a great actor. And it was one of those things where I think because he became so treasured and lovey so early on in his career, I think he was about 28 or 29 when he did Henry V. Fifth, and um, it kind of made, made him into a national treasure, as you say. Yeah. And he also wrote an autobiography at the age of 29. And it's like, fuck off. <laughs> fuck off. But then for about 10 years or so, it was kind of, he was not... Not Persona Non Grata, but didn't really do anything in terms of film. I, I, I yeah, presume he was just yeah, doing lots of theatre work. But it was one of those things where I think he's, in his later career, has become kind of a really important... Into the legend, hasn't he? Yeah, he has. And he's become like a really important filmmaker and a really important actor as well. And he, I think that you put him in a big in a big Hollywood blockbuster and he can just carry it. Because there were times when I thought, just really good shots of your face looking in, intense as you solve this crime... It's just good fun to watch. And and really good that he went with the moustache, because I think it's one of those things where he... Much like he got the tone of Thor absolutely spot on, in terms of, you know, when to treat it seriously and when to rib it, he gets the tone here really well with Pyro, in terms of, like, yeah, because you... He is a dramatic character he's and got, you and he's, you he's do. bombastic he's got he's bombastic but he also kind of yeah but he also yeah when he's being serious you don't laugh at him and there's a and there's some really good um interplay between him and some of the suspects and there's that really really good scene with johnny depp when johnny depp is uh propositioning trying, him yeah indeed to mm. to hire him for a job not for anything else <laughs> and he's really affronted because johnny depp is a bit of a yeah he's like a ne'er-do-well um and you're not laughing at him at that point. But there are other times when people say, your moustache is funny. Or he's got like a moustache mask that's quite like, funny. It's quite, like, quite Hannibal <laughs> Lecter. Yeah, when he sleeps. I mean, this, this, the tash, it's, it's, it's less facial adornment than it is Christmas decoration. He's festooned in it. There are, like, there are layers. It does drape. It does, it does. And you kind of see, you know, it's growing out of his cheeks. It's, um... So would, yeah, it's, uh, I would love to see what Agatha Christie thought of that because because the out the adaptations of her work that she saw one of her main criticisms was they never got the tash right because he was always meant to have this resplendent you know the best mustache <laughs> and uh, and everyone it always always sort of just tr- goes very neat with it they mm. sort of make it a very tight curl and it's like oh, it's, meant to, it's meant to be magnificent yes and, the, and that's the thing is he does have a magnificent mustache and also with this film I think you know, one of the things I really enjoyed was that 
it's got a big starry cast and a big starry cast sometimes is just is worth the price alone to just watch them be in what is essentially a pantomime um, but a really really well shot and well directed pantomime um, so you have Michelle Pfeiffer as a widow looking for a new man isn't she and she really does bring the old school glamour of um, of someone like you know, Gloria Graham or someone like she's that very I mean, garrulous socialite yeah but just has that kind of proper old school glamour basically yeah um, and Daisy Ridley is kind of you know the new new Hollywood and she's she's a governess with a past isn't she and it's all the it's all the nice stereotypes and archetypes that you get from these things so who else is there what are the ones there's um, Penelope Cruz is uh, as a religious sort of She's a tough missionary, like, like, yeah, like, yeah, like a, and uh, and <laughs> in the original film, that role was played by Ingrid Bergman, who won Best Supporting Actress for it. <laughs> yes. A fact that when I tried to relate to Rob in the cinema shortly before the film began, he was convinced I was making an absolutely impenetrable pun. Or there was just some... because Rob earlier that week had said, "You know, Ingrid Bergman won an Oscar for her portrayal in the 1970s version of Murder on the Orient Express." But when Rob is making a joke, he gets a, a twinkle in his eyes, and his his mouth will curl in a in a wry smile. And he did that, so I thought it was like, no, I just don't get the both. I don't get the pun here. What is the joke? And then it turns out there wasn't a joke. She did win an Oscar, and I refused to believe him because it just seemed like he was having a laugh. But uh, but I'm glad that she did win an Oscar because she was very good. Because that character was written as Polish, wasn't she? But yes. here she's been changed to um, she's moved to Mexican. Um, and and yeah, it's, it, it, and it is a great cast, and oh, it's got um, uh, obviously Willem Dafoe. Willem Dafoe as, was a, a, sort of this racialist Austrian professor. He's a Nazi doctor. Yeah, he's a, <laughs> this is pre. Yeah, this is this is no, this is around the Nazis. This is early nineteen thirty four. Yeah, they were kind of they were in they were they were in indeed. And eugenics was a was a big thing that was just emerging as uh, the biological bullshit that they believed in. So, um, but yes, so and um, and, it, and he's again, he's good. It's um, and uh, Director Kobe. As Jacoby, Jacoby, my God! I'm, the accent is just filtered through to some part of my brain, and it's just malfunctioning. It's just sending off little neurons. Derek Jacoby, Jesus, uh, uh, Derek Jacoby, as the uh, as the butler, as as Hardyman, who was in the original film played by John Gilgood. Mm, that's right, and. With Josh Gad in there as well. Isn't yeah, there? Josh Gad in in the role originally played by Norman Bates. Anthony Perkins, Anthony Perkins yeah. yes. which would be interesting to see because the original has like yeah, Sean Connery and Albert Finney um, and apparently Ingrid Bergman. But um, so it's and I think it kind of like yeah, matches the star wattage of of that film in this film. Is there anyone else huge that we're actually missing out here? There's well, Judy Dench, of Judy course, Dench, she's oh. in it as um, as an aged princess, Princess and, Dragomirov, um, and she yeah delivers a big thick slice of. Olivia Colman as uh, Hildegard yep. Schmidt, the the, uh, the maid, well, sorry, the uh, the handmaiden. Um, and I thought she was Miss Carthy. So I think that Olivia Colman shouldn't have been playing a German. I don't think she, I don't think that she was particularly necessary for that role. And I think that they should have cast someone else, a German actress, maybe. Controversial. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's uh, um, and it's so the thing is, this is it is it's really good fun to watch. But as a person who didn't know anything about this, but I knew the ending. Um, but I thought the one thing that it isn't doing here is letting you in to solve the mystery and isn't part of the thrill of, of a whodunit that you see clues and you can join in and think, oh, I wonder who did it and oh, I think it's that person, I think it's that person but then at the end you see the flashbacks that reveal who did it and you find out the deduction of the master sleuth and you think, that's why I didn't know because he's, um, he's brilliant and, but it was really good fun to join in but 
This film held you at arm's length in it's terms more of solving concerned, it. I mean, it keeps on going on how Poirot can see into people's hearts, and it's, but it's more concerned with the moral dimension of of the detective, almost as a character study, because it keeps you know he keeps on talking about how he all he can see in the world are the imperfections and how that plagues him, and he's got this lost love who's very much not in the book, yeah. um, and it's sort of more and obviously Branagh wanted to carve out some more recess, uh, you know, some deeper recesses into it because in the original film it's very much Finney has, you know, he's very unreadable, he's capricious, he's got this twinkle in his eye, but it lets you into his head and sort of he explains his reasoning as you're going on and it's very much, it's very, you know, you can follow the logic far more clearly than you can in this. This is just more interested, almost in, in psychology, in psychology, in a way that's not that fulfilling because they are all types. And whodunits were never about the psychology, really. You would always find out. I mean, these so were not wide on it. No, that's right. This is not Mindhunter. This is a who. This is, this is what we had before we had serial killers. Oh, there is always there was always a motive. I'm that so up for that. Though it's like you know, <laughs> murder on the Orient Express. Except at the end, it turns out it's like he ate part of the fucking body. <laughs> yeah, like, there is. Some, I mean, <laughs> Jesus Christ! I will never be able to unsee what I've seen. I'm just not equipped to deal with that. I'm, you know, everything is so quaint. <laughs> just, it's like kind of a, he was walking around holding a head, it's but just, his hands were free. <laughs> it's Albert Fish. I mean, Jesus. <laughs> Sorry, that's a deep cut. That's a, that's a been more the ways than one. Indeed. Um, but yes, this, this is the thing: is that the thing about the Who Done It is, it's a puzzle box, isn't it? It's a it's a nice thing that you kind of join in and you see if you can work it out for yourself. It's and not M. It's not M. And this tries to put the psychological meat onto the story, but there, but it fails because it's like, and it fails for the same reason that superhero films fail ultimately because it's like these characters are not designed to carry this weight. They are. They, they are, are designed to tell a riveting story. Exactly. They are driven by action and <sighs> trying to find deep. They've got to skip along the surface. And the moment that you kind of have to try to hold them in place for a second and go, let's question that, they sink. Yeah, that's right. But it's then testament to the film itself, and particularly how it's shot and how it's designed, that I still enjoyed this film, even though I had some serious issues with it. Other parts of the film, I thought the film looked great. I thought it looked like a proper old-school Hollywood epic. It had a real sense. He, Branagh can direct a film... And make it look like Doctor Zhivago or something like that. It's like, and you kind of think, well, in this, and we'll get onto Thor Ragnarok in in a minute. But it's like in this age of just bland pastel CGI, it's nice to have someone saying, "I'm going to make a big widescreen epic that's going to have dynamic composition in there, and I'm going to show how wonderful it is to shoot a movie star's face in like a big close up." And we have lost a certain amount of the um, you know, bravura of filmmaking, and I'm going to bring it back. And I thought that was good. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think I think the main issues are whenever the film tries to interrogate characters more deeply than the plot requires. Oh yeah, indeed. Because I think it's all it's based around a series of interrogations about Poirot being brilliant, and it's meant to it's meant to spark things off. You're meant to go, oh look at that, you know, the little, that pretty little spark of deduction. You're not meant to sort of you know be staring down the barrel of you know someone's of, abyss. Of, oh yeah, of existential angst. That's right. It's like this character should not be feeling like this character should be feeling that because it's dealing with some very dark and serious issues. But you can't dwell on that. You need to keep again. You need to keep skipping. Yeah. Uh, but altogether, mostly you know a, a, a first class production. Yes, indeed, definitely. If um, not quite, indeed, a second class script. Um, derails a little bit. Uh, what else? What are the cliches? Can we wheel out here? Um, but actually, the one thing, the one thing that I uh, that I will say 
is that at the end of the film they not not to spoil it but it kind of in a bit of a Batman Begins type way sets it up for another adventure and I thought you know what I'm, Even though this had some issues, I would I would definitely watch another adventure with you playing Hercule Poirot. The thing is, I'm not sure this is going to make enough money to justify it. But it'd be interesting to see if Branagh clearly has a deep affection for the character. Um, you know, he's, you know, this man, the man who's played you know Henry, Henry V and and Hamlet and you know and Victor Frankenstein and, mm-hmm. and he's kind of working his way through the through the annals of English literature. Yeah, um, would choose to say actually, you know what, I'll make it on a smaller budget because these films you can I think that you can do a budget version of them and still get some sense of them of the what grandeur the in the, of this film. I don't actually know. Let's have a look because it's one of those films. I don't know what they declared it. It looks very big and grand, but I wonder if they actually if it was. 55 million. Okay. I mean, that's... And that's not... I mean, it will... So I think it opened to something like 25 million in the States this weekend, and I think it's done about 10 million in this country so far. So this is going to make its money back, and it will make, I think, a tiny profit. And I think, to to be honest, if you... I think that you could make a sequel to this film and say, actually, do you know what? We have learned the mistakes of the previous film, and but we... But there's still some mileage in this character as long as we don't give him all this baggage and we can make the you know, the next one just more of like a rip-roaring whodunit. Get lots of cast in there and uh, yeah, lots of big names again. And I, yeah, I would definitely go and watch it. And again, it's one of uh, the, the Houston of, the Peter Houston of who played, the, who played who was in the original sort of you know, after he took over from Albert Finney. They were just sort of very starry, knockabout affairs. And as much as I'm not a big fan of Peter Houston of in the role... Uh, you know what, if you put Kenneth Branagh in there, I would definitely watch it. Yeah, because I thought this was going to be a panto. You don't need to have all the psychological stuff in there, and you just don't need to have like a lost love, which apparently isn't canon anyway. So. No, it's just, it's just an excuse him to look at, you know, he's him looking at a photo and going, Ah, mon chéri, my heart did... That's more Pepe <laughs> Le Pew, actually. Yeah. Very Pepe oh, Le Pew. my heart did bleeds and it weeps for you. Oh. Um... So yes, <laughs> so I don't think there's anything right. It's the French, isn't it? It's fine. He's Belgian. <laughs> look, look, if we're going to get into certain cities within France, then yes, he is Belgian. But let's just say that he's French and I'm right. And the French are well known for taking a joke. And apparently there's a place in France called Belgium. Actually, yeah, do you know what? It's just a shame that they didn't try and turn this into an analogy for Brexit. Yeah, you think? Oh, I, I'm sure there's some reading of it that's got a Brexit reading of this. I think I just did the Brexit reading of it. Basically, ignorant English people who <laughs> watch this film. Um, so there you go. Okay, well, actually, I think this is, if you don't mind, talking about a trip of existential angst and stuff like that. It's a good point to talk about Sorcerer very quickly. Uh, sure. So Sorcerer is the William Friedkin film. Uh, so William Friedkin, of course, directed The French Connection. He directed The Exorcist. In 77, he directed Sorcerer. And Sorcerer was his first film after The Exorcist. So he was a you know, superstar director. I mean, he basically reinvented the cop thriller with The French Connection, completely reinvented horror cinema with The Exorcist. And the produ- I think that The Exorcist is still like in the top 20 films of all time when adjusted for inflation. It was a phenomenal success. And he wanted to make a remake of The Wages of Fear. And The Wages of Fear is a film by Henri-Georges Clouseau, uh, made in 1953, about criminals um, and people trapped in a South American slum town uh, who 
can get out and will be paid a lot of money if they agree to drive truckfuls of nitroglycerine through the jungle to get to an oil well because they need to detonate the well. And it's one of the great suspense films of cinema, although I'm not entirely sure that the original Wages of Fear has aged particularly well. It's still... It's interesting, but I I don't know. I think I saw earlier in the year in the cinema, the suspense sequences are still are they? remarkable. There's a really good scene, I remember, where the truck in front is driving really slowly, slowly and it can't speed up or it'll blow up, and the truck behind is going too quickly and it can't slow down, it'll blow, blow up. up. And, it's and like, if, they, if, they, if they collide, they're going to blow <laughs> up. They're going to blow up. And I remember that scene being really, really great. Um, and it is a good film. It's, it's about two and a half hours long, I think. So anyway, so William Friedkin was his ego knew no bounds in in the late seventies. He was uh, he was one of he was like a he was the parody of a tyrannical Hollywood director. But he wanted to remake The Wages of Fear, and he wanted to go down to South America or to Latin America to the Dominican Republic and remake this movie. And he made a film that had the misfortune because it took so long to shoot this film. They were shooting for ten months. It went way over budget. It went so over budget that it was originally going to be bankrolled by Universal. They had to get Paramount involved as well to cover the cost. It was $21 million at the time to make this movie. In seventy-seven, the film that came out that completely buried this at the box office was Star Wars. And Star Wars cost $7.5 million to make, which shows just how the much of scale, yeah. over budget, yeah, indeed, Sorcerer went thing is with Sorcerer is that it is one of those where the money is up there on screen. They went down, kind of like Apocalypse Now, they went down into the jungle, went mad, and got some of the most amazing footage of these guys driving these trucks through jungle terrain and the worst conditions and these trucks, sorry, these trucks are on the very edge of like a precipice and there's just so, it's just so much risk there because it's all done for real and it's one of those films that you're thinking this this is why Dunkirk did so well this year, because there is something about a film done for real in really, really hostile territory that just you can't really replicate on a soundstage, and you certainly can't replicate it with CGI. And there is a, there is a long and storied tradition of you know people going into you know going into the jungle or going into you know uh, hostile, hostile territory. You know, there's there's that there's. Um... Uh, there's Apocalypse Now, you said there's, there's a great sort of Wrath of God. Yeah, Van Herzog film, yeah, yeah, yeah there's indeed. A, there's Raw. There's, there's Raw, <laughs> Raw, which we can't get onto Raw now because we'll be here all night. We will do another podcast about Raw. Raw, the Tippy Hedron film, which is like Born Free meets uh, a horror movie, meets a home movie, meets the weirdest thing you've ever seen that's absolutely fascinating. That's Raw. We'll talk about Raw another time. Also, I suppose, meets um, Fitzcarraldo. Yes. Which is like another Herzog film. The guy who drags the uh, the big boat, the big steamer boat through the jungle to, and, to bring opera to the natives. And obviously the lesson that Werner Herzog took from that, from the, this portrayal of Falling on a Grand Scale, is that he should just do it for real. Do it for real. That's what William Friedkin learned as well, that it's, I'm going to do this film for real. And it stars Roy Scheider. Uh, so he was off of Jaws a couple of years earlier. Um off the French Connection, obviously. Off the French Connection. Um, and other other people. It doesn't really have a starry cast because the original choice was Steve McQueen. And Steve McQueen said, yeah, I'll do it. Um, but I just got married to Annie McGraw and I don't want to leave her for yeah, months and months while we go down to the Latin American jungle. So can I bring Annie McGraw with me? And he, um, and Freakin, and he actually says in, in a sight and sound interview just how stupid he was as a young man. He was in his early 40s. He says, oh, come on, Steve. It's like, 
there's only one role for a woman in this film. It's a very, very male film. There's only one role for a woman, and it's a French role, and we've got a French actress because everyone plays their own nationality in this film. So therefore, there's no real role for Ali. He said, well, can't we just give a, an associate producer credit? And he said, well, that's like a bullshit credit, and isn't that like you're demeaning her just to give her a credit just so that she comes down and can just be with you? This was just hubris of the First Order because he lost Steve McQueen which meant that um, he also lost Marcello Mastrioni is that how you say it? Um, Mastrioni, oh Mastrioni, yeah, yeah who wouldn't take second bill into anyone other than Steve McQueen and certainly not Roy Scheider and he lost someone else really big as well anyway so they got Roy Scheider and, but he just wasn't the box office draw they made this film it's this it's a big film it's about these guys and the first 24 minutes of the film is yeah setting up the characters there's um there's a there's a terrorist an arab terrorist who uh who blows up part of jerusalem um so this is the kind of world that you're in there's a banker like a corrupt banker who has to leave there's a hitman and there's roy scheider who's a wheelman for a mob and he gets in trouble with the with the local mafia and has to flee. And I was watching it thinking, this film is just a film of now. This is all about globalisation and this is all about corrupt bankers and terrorism and this is this was so ahead of its time in terms of what it's saying. And also, they're on zero-hour contracts. This is the ultimate zero-hour contract job they're doing because they could be terminated at any moment. And this film has aged so well in terms of what it says about today's world that it was way ahead of its time. Just was too much I think for those audiences particularly an audience that was coming out of the 70s and all the corruption there and had Star Wars to go to but you watch it now and it's like I'm sorry this is a masterpiece this is a masterpiece this film and um, thank God that it's been restored because it was recut and you know, ruined for years and years and was really hard to see but uh, so that's Sorcerer which is all done for real and was lovely and has a scene where they're having to cross a rope bridge during a thunderstorm uh, during a tropical storm that is one of the just, just one of the best action set pieces that you're going to see. So then on to Thor Ragnarok, <laughs> which is very much done CGI, I think. It's, um, yeah, so the... what's the story of Thor Ragnarok? In prison, the almighty Thor finds himself in a lethal gladiatorial combat against the Hulk, his former ally. Thor must fight for survival and race against time to prevent the all-powerful Hela from destroying his home and the Asgardian civilization. Um, yeah, that. I mean, like it kind of it kind of opens with him. Like the synopsis kind of opens with him battling Hulk, and that is probably the main set piece. But it's not really, it's not Planet Hulk. It's not that story. No, it's not. It's um, it's not what I thought it was going to be because I I remember this being pitched years and years ago because this film seems to have taken ages to come out, and it uh, I know it hasn't. I know it's well, always it was always due to come out end of October of this year. But well, it's because the Planet Hulk idea has been 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 sort of out in the ether for so long because they were considering doing the next standalone Hulk film as Planet Hulk which is why at the end of Age of Ultron Hulk ends up in the Learjet sort of heading potentially into orbit oh okay and so what's, so what's um, Planet Hulk Planet Hulk is, is, a, is a, a comic arc uh, in which Hulk ends up on a planet <laughs> on an alien world and is forced essentially into gladiatorial combat right. which becomes has become an element of Thor Ragnarok um, Ragnarok is in itself a story arc uh, of Thor starring Thor uh, which is about Twilight of the, Twilight of the Gods the pre the predestined prophesied uh, end of Asgard yeah the, uh, which is you know the home of Thor and, all, and Odin and Loki and all the Asgardians and that's kind of what this film's about isn't it it's, uh, it's about Thor 
just being slapped around a lot, I think, before then... And um, screaming hysterically, and which, screaming, which is quite fun. Yes, indeed. It's, and it's, it's fun. That's, that, that's the, you know, that's the, that's the watch word. That is the, just, that is the word that you know, they might... They didn't give this a BBFC rating. They just stamped the big word, the, the big red word fun on it. They're like, yes. is, it a, is it a PG? Is it a 12? Is it a 15? It's fun. There we go. Just have fun with that. It's one of those that I read years ago that this was going to be like a Marvel Midnight Run. Yeah, um, a midnight run being the Robert De Niro film where he's a bounty hunter who has to escort an embezzler, um, an accountant who's stolen money from the mob, played by Charles Grodin, has to has to get him across America uh, before a certain deadline because he's jumped his bail. And it's I just think one of the best scripts of all time. It's so it's such a brilliant script and a you know one of the best films of all time as well. And I thought, oh, great, like yeah, a Marvel midnight run. It's not that. <laughs> it's it's a buddy film with Thor and Hulk and... Not even that much of Hulk. Not really, no. And it's... It's fine. It's, it's one of those where you're kind of watching it going, this is fine. It's this... moderately funny. It's offbeat. Well, it's, 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 by, it's by Taika Waititi, who did, you know, um, uh, What We Do in the Shadows, who did A Hunt for the Water People. Yeah, so it has that. But again, it's one of those things where it's like, you... It's funny, I actually thought it was very funny. I thought there were moments in it that I really, really laughed at. But it's another case of Marvel hiring an indie director who has a certain sensibility and and then and then saying, you can work within this framework, so a little bit of your oddballness will come through, but really you're still going to be producing the exact product, and it is a product, that we want you to make. And I think here that the oddballness came through in in the soundtrack more than anything else I thought there was some quite good synth tracks in in there that were a little bit offbeat and but nothing quite really Queen or John Carpenter I mean there's a definite yeah. there's a definite Flash Gordon or yeah. even, even, a high, even in places a Highlander vibe to this yeah it seems like a cult 80s action movie um, action fantasy movie but it's designed to be that which kind of robs it of some of the charm and that's the thing is that yeah, Flash Gordon was not designed to be a cult film it was designed to be Star Wars it was going to be seen by as many people as Star Wars. Highlander was not designed to be a straight-to-video... Um, sorry, a hit on video. It was designed to be a, a big smash at, at cinema, but was completely overlooked and then became a big hit because of video. This is one of those that's like, yeah, we want that, but we also want to have the massive hit at the cinema, which they've got, and this film's done amazingly well. It's just... I'm just watching it thinking... So, again, you've got the issue with the villains. So, so Kate Blanchett kind of has fun with her role as Hela, the all-powerful evil woman who's going to destroy Asgard. And she's got a pretty good character motivation. She has. I mean, it kind of... Yeah, I won't spoil it here, because there is a part of me that thinks, am I just too old for this? And the reason why I don't get on with this is because really this is not aimed at me. Because when we saw it, we saw it um, at a public screening, and there was a lad sitting next to me who was with his dad and, you know, his mum and dad and his sister... And there's a tw- well, you know, a twist or like a character revelation that happens, and he went oh, and looked at his dad and was like, "Oh my god, that's amazing!" And I thought, okay, that's interesting because you clearly have watched the Marvel films more than once, whereas I tend to watch them once or twice if they're if they're really good, or many times if it's Winter Soldier. But you clearly know you know, much more about this than I do, and that was a big moment for you. So maybe these are just not for me anymore. Um, no, it's the children. The children who are wrong. The children who are wrong. <laughs> but then again, I always say, yeah. But you go back and you watch Jaws or Raiders or Ghostbusters. Nothing wrong there, is there? Still holds up. Star Wars still holds up for all ages. So, and I think it's because maybe if you're a kid, these have heart. 
but this was heartless to me. I mean, this had no soul. They're dealing with you know big stakes, and but every time there's an emotional beat, the humour comes in and undercuts it. And it's snark. It's not like a warm humour. It's like a snarky. Oh, we're going to say something here that's going to show how clever we are. It's like, a, oops, look at that. You tripped on that stone. It's like, yeah, it is. It's like it's, it's it kind of it points out that you shouldn't actually have any emotion to this other than a me. <laughs> And that really, really yeah, began to annoy me. And there's a bit at the end where something quite terrible happens. Um, and then someone says something and it's kind of like, oh, okay, that's... So you've gone for snark again. But then they then say something else that turns it into something quite actually heartwarming and shows that things... That gives hope. And then undercuts that. And it's like, oh, fuck off. Just fuck off with your snark. And... And put and, heart back into a fucking Marvel movie. And that's movie. intentional because I mean there, there, there are some reshoots in this film. Reshoots aren't necessarily, you know, sign of, you know, because. Um, but there is a se- there are scenes in this film earlier that Rob and I commented. We won't talk about them because they are spoilers. Involving involving. Um, we can say sort of involving Odin. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, they're clearly yeah. meant to have some, but they were reshot and put in a different location because they thought that it would be too emotional. They thought it would, you know, they they, they were worried it was going to sort of kill the mood. Essentially, it's like it spoil the fun. When actually, I think it's one of these things where this film has enough fun in it that you could have put a bit more. And it's weird, yeah, coming off the back of Murder on the Orient Express, you could have actually put a put a bit more psychological and emotional heft to the beginning of this film because it then would have grounded all the all the confectionery of yeah, the later part of the film and that's the thing and blockbusters can have an emotion like you know going going to Star Wars Uncle Owen and Aunt Baru get burned to death in the first act end of the first act Empire Strikes Back is a very very dark film um, but it's still a blockbuster it's still a it's still thrilling and do you know what I think it's actually a better film because of that because I liked Thor Ragnarok, I think, more than you did because I just because it was more fun than I thought it would be because it's two hours and ten, and I thought, oh, it's just another troll to get through this film. But actually, I thought it had more life to it than I thought it would, and there were some bits that really, really made me laugh. And at the end, I thought, well, just the fact that it wasn't boring and a troll meant that I that I actually ended. Thought that was it was fine, it was fine, but you were um, a bit more down on it because I think you just wanted something. Well, the trailer, the trailer, you know, has some great shots, for example, with um, Valkyrie, the Tessa Thompson character, sort of, you know, oh, yes, and, and the Valkyries riding into battle you know, sort of on the winged horses against Hela, and they're shot with a real golden glow and a sense of majesty to them. And it's a montage, it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's in the film, and it's there's no grandeur to it. This thing, you know, there are battles aboard, you know, upon the Bifrost Bridge, the Rainbow Bridge, and this thing is taking place on a galactic scale that, you know, encompasses, you know, technology and elements that seem to be supernatural, you know, sort of the Arthur C. Clarke rule. Yeah. But it's just like, oh, it's been played for, for a giggle. It's been played for giggle and, um, yeah, because there's a, there is, yeah, there is a big battle, as you said, on the, on the Rainbow Bridge, which is the, the big bridge in Asgard they have to go across get into the city you'll recognise it you'll know it like if we were given yeah. directions you'd, you'd, it's a big bridge you'd find it but it's one of those things where I think it again it suffers from from CGI-tis um, the, the action sequences are very blah they are blah they are kind of weightless and they're blah and it's one of those things where again to get back to Sorcerer or to get back to Dunkirk or actually the original um, sorry X-Men 
first class, the one where he pulls a submarine up out. There is a there is a sense of spectacle to that that is amazing and in sorcerer when it's just a truck that's trying to get across a rope bridge in a storm, but the truck is so big and you get a real sense of just how how heavy it is and it could crash through this bridge at any moment. And Dunkirk, of course, it's like yeah, these little men that are in this huge ocean. It's going to scale. It's a and it's scale, but it's it's a scale that you can relate to. And with these Marvel films, it's like it seems to be that their mantra is if less is more, think how much more will be. And we'll just put everything in there so you just get this huge, huge spectacle in, in front of your eyes. But it's like, it's, I'm just overwhelmed by this. And also I know that this is too big to be real, so therefore... And there's not even... I know there's artistry involved in digital effects, but they're not tactile. There's nothing tactile about this that I'm watching, and I'm just beginning to kind of get a bit sick of it. Although Wonder Woman, I think, did do... I mean, yeah, that bit when they go across No Man's Land in Wonder Woman was great, but... But Logan's the best superhero film of the year because it keeps it very, very ground level, I think. And that's the thing. I think these characters are so recognisable. And obviously you do need the spectacle. But again, yeah, you can't just throw an, a wave of endless hench people mm. at the hero and have them be very competently you know, demolishing them. You do need... Again, there's almost kind of... And this is weird for like a... There's almost a lack of set pieces. Yeah, because again, it's like, you know... If less is more, then think how much more will be. Let's have the entire film as a set piece. Because <laughs> there's there's a lot of big spectacle that just happens throughout this film. I mean, everything everything is big and has lots of things to look at. But Hulk v Thor is the what is the only interesting fight I can point to and say, okay, there was actually some... Yeah, indeed. I'm trying to think of other bits that were thrilling and uh, exciting and not really, no. I mean, there's... Um, yeah... What's her name again? Tessa Thompson. Valkyrie. Um, as Valkyrie, yeah. And she's and she's kind of the new female character there. So she's replacing Sif, played by Jamie, Jamie Alexander. Jamie Alexander, who's in Blind Spot. So she's got her hit series, so she's off doing that. But it's like, oh I like Sif. Because in the original Thor, one of the things that I thought, yeah, this is working, is when and I'm sure everyone's seen the original Thor, but there's uh, a moment, there's a period when Thor loses his powers. And there might be a moment when Thor gets his powers back. And that moment when he gets his powers back and it's all this and it's all begins to kick off and then he just cuts to Sif with a big smile on her face because her friend is coming back and Thor's going to make everything alright. And I thought, yeah, you've absolutely nailed the tone of this film. Whereas in this, Thor is depowered, but the moment or the point at which he's, he sort of rediscovers his power is just arbitrary. It's just like and now the plot says that Thor shall get his powers back because they were within him the whole time. And it's like Yay! Yeah, and that's yeah. I remember you saying that after the film, saying there was a lot of this happens now because it needs to happen now because we are seventy-eight minutes into the running time, or because we're one hundred and five minutes into the running time. And it's like, yeah, you're right. And but then it's fun to watch Hiddleston play Loki again, and they're into play. I mean, yeah, um, Chris Hemsworth, I think, yeah, deserved whatever astronomical fee he got because breezy charm because it's breezy charm just keeps this watchable. It's like, yeah, this is a film that's overloaded with visual information and actually is could could be quite leaden and if it didn't have such a charismatic lead and Chris Hemsworth is just great as Thor and Jeff Goldblum is Jeff Goldblum it is but you know what I mean he's he's playing like a bit of a baddie who's on the on the planet where Hulk is but he doesn't do anything anything. that's right he's just a baddie because of what he says he's done rather than what he actually does and it's like show it don't tell clearly was not a script note that was given for his character and it's like and again and it wasn't even that well written so you're just getting by on Jeff Goldblum just being Jeff Goldblum yeah and just 
be a being fun to watch because he's Jeff Goldblum. And Carl Urban's in it, and he was completely wasted. But it's also one of those things where, again, it's like, it's Guardians of the Galaxy 3, basically. And the Guardians of the Galaxy, rather than being the the kooky little outlier of the Marvel Cinematic Universe has become the template that they're just all sticking to now. It was meant, to, it was meant to break the mould, but instead it became, it, be, it became... Oh, we can just do this. Yeah, and it became such a fixed mould, and and I just think everything wrong with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you can you can go back to that original Guardians film and say, it's all here. The, there's no heart. It's all just played for laughs. It's all yeah, visually really quite dull. This is where the rot set in, and the fact that it made so much money doesn't mean anything because uh, they all make money. Because they all make money. I mean, this has made this has made. I think this has made about half a billion already. It's only about a couple of weeks, so they're clearly going to make a ton of money on Infinity War, which is the next one, isn't it? And that's the one. Uh, yeah, I think it's Infinity War. Black Panther. Black Panther. Yeah. I Black Panther. I'm interested by, but Infinity War is the one I kind of got my hopes set on because it's like. Look, you've been saying that it's all been building to this. You've been like all the films that have just incrementally moved the pieces. This needs to be incredible. This needs to be. This needs to pack a wallop. Like, you need to be just laying off. You just need to be laying waste to your supporting cast. There's a scene in Thor Ragnarok where it looks like a where a member of the supporting cast is about to sort of just disappear off into the universe. It's like, no, they can't escape because you can't have that character. Say, what the fuck are you going to do with them? <laughs> you're, you're, like, you're going to bring them back in five films down the line and be like, hello, remember me? It's like, why? And that's the thing is that they just need to commit to... Just killing some people. Yeah, dude, it's like, just, I mean, it, and it sounds heartless, but then, yeah, these, these films are soulless and, yeah, they just need to... They just need to do that. Um, because Natalie Portman was pretty unceremoniously dumped from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I think she, I think she unceremoniously dumped the Marvel Universe. I think she? she? Yeah, I think she decided she wanted to go and work in Terrence Malick films. <laughs> Fucking hell. And then, I mean, if she did Jackie because she got out of doing Thor this film, know. then good. Because, yeah, Jackie was brilliant and she... Would... And if she got out of this film so she could go and do Knight of Cups... Then mm. her agent needs to have a jolly strong word with her, <laughs> because no one should. I mean, I would say, as bland as these Marvel films are, I would watch Thor Ragnarok a hundred times before I would watch another Terrence Malick film, because he is just. I know I'm going to watch Song to Song. I just know it's no, going you're to not. Happen. You're not because it's... I will take your eyes before you do. <laughs> That those vile jellies shall not <laughs> shall not see the latest atrocity from Terence Malick. It's like you know, Rob, I was really angry at the time, but you know, time to think about it. I think you did me a favour. Yeah, indeed. So he actually said that with his eyes shut, as if, as if his <laughs> eyes had been ripped out of his, his head, and that's what his eyelids do now because nothing in there. Um, so strangely, with Braille, I've actually got more time to read, which yeah, is which indeed. is. And you know what? It took me a minute to read the late uh, the latest Terence Malick script. <laughs> Guy wanders round and says, "Really, yeah, really, it's written, it's written on fucking air. Yeah. Written on air." Um, anyway, yeah, I like the way that we can always get a dig in terms of again, even when talking about oh, because, it's, because he's become because he's become the like Batman v Superman only can only take a certain amount of hatred. But you know, we've, you know, we've got the Justice League. You know, what? I'm I'm more excited about seeing Justice League almost than I was about seeing Thor Ragnarok because Justice League, I've heard it's not very good. But, I'll, but it will give me... <laughs> Rob reacts with surprise. 
Only because I because I read it on Twitter over the weekend quite a lot of positive stuff about yeah, it. Yeah, but that's the fans. They've let the they've let they've let this. Um, it was Peter Soretta from the Slash Filmcast who kind of said actually this is not brilliant, but this is good. There is there is more humour in it. I mean, it actually sounds like Thor Ragnarok. Um, they put humour in it. In no, it, don't don't not... Thor Ragnarok. It make look either make a terrible <laughs> film or a film that's like I th- I didn't think Wonder Woman was great. Or like or a film that a film with some greatness in it. Yeah, indeed. Don't, don't Thor Ragnarok it. Don't just go. There you go. Don't you don't go. don't like half ass it like you're mid you know like you're handing in your book report and you know you're going to get a C plus <laughs> on it and it's fine. But it'd be fascinating, of course, to watch it to see how a film that has basically been made by two directors looks. Um, but yes, so next the next podcast we do next week there'll be like a rush a rush repeat or be like a rush new episode. We'll be about Justice League and we'll see if that's better than Thor Ragnarok. Which is the very definition, as you said, of fun, didn't you? I just think it's fine. It's fine, fine. There you go. And it's fun in the way that you say fun with a shrug. Yeah, it's fun it's as in the way that you're saying yeah. fun right now with a slight, too much emphasis on the fur as if it's a swear word. It's it's fun. It's fun? <laughs> well, yeah, it's it's, it's, just, it's just like the lowest common denominator. This is what Marvel do now. They have done this amazing thing where they make perfectly agreeable films, it's becoming harder and harder to like. <laughs> it's like... But, uh, do you know what? Spider-Man Homecoming. Yeah, actually. But that, well, yes, indeed. But I think with Spider-Man Homecoming, they because they're just coasting with these films. And you're right about Avengers, Infinity War. They need to provide something or deliver something that you've never seen before. That's what it's built up to. You kind of need to cry during Infinity War. And it could be that. It could be that you, it is a superhero film... Any superhero films that I've cried at? Um, trying to think. Second time seeing Batman v Superman. <laughs> yeah, that's the first time. Um, <laughs> Why did I do this again? <laughs> There's nothing. Do you know what? I, I'm I'm sure there is somewhere. But the one superhero thing that did actually make me tear up was um, the end of Daredevil season one episode two, <laughs> when he has that amazing fight scene. Then it has a a really wonderful emotional punchline to it and I kind of choked up at that and was quite quite surprised at my reaction to it it was quite late at night um, but, uh, but yeah I've been drinking actually I've been drinking <laughs> <laughs> but, I, I, I just like I know I, I'm not ashamed to say I had an emotional I'm not gonna yeah I had a lump in my throat during the um, no, man's, man's, that, that, no man's land scene in Wonder Woman I had I had a little bit of a I think I did as well actually because there is yeah go on because there's, there's an, un, an unvarnished heroism to it and it's also the thing there that she is not just you know, being a superhero and you know, laying waste to um, laying waste, sorry, to all of her enemies. She is she's bringing so out much. the best in, yeah. in the people behind her. She's leading the charge. She's bringing out the best in everyone around her. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I was quite emotionally involved in that moment as well. Um, and then she just started punching David oh, Thewlis. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Oh my god. Oh my god. Yes, indeed. Um, uh, Logan. Obviously, yes, of course. Logan, at the end of the Logan. ground level superhero film that we've been talking about. Yes, indeed. That was the the first time. Yeah, I saw it with you. Um, the second time I saw it with my mate Michael at his place. Both times was very very misty eyed at the end of that. I'm sorry, that does have a massive emotional it's, punch to the end. I of think it. that's partly because I haven't been thinking of Logan as a superhero film. No, that's what. Um, I mean, either it's like it is obviously a superhero film. But it's so different, and it try and it actually has heart, and that's the thing is that Logan is the yeah, Logan's the exception that proves the rule now that that everything else we're getting is just soulless 
vacuous eye candy. Then you have Logan, this film that's just raw and immediate and made with genuine emotion and actually just has a knockout punchline. And luckily, that was the end of the X Men franchise and they never made another one. That's right. Um, We'll see how that goes. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so we'll see about Infinity Wars. We'll see Black Panther. Black Panther could be great. It does look like it has a bit of the CGI-tis about it as well, though. So um, we'll need to see. Um, yeah, yeah, and obviously we will because that's the thing we don't watch every single one of these films that comes out we're never going to stop doing it and I was thinking actually that the original X-Men was 2000 so we're almost at 20 years of superhero films and they're not going anywhere so yes would you like to end with a little bit of Jean-Pierre Melville you said you want to talk about that if you want to oh no it's going to be Suburbicon you want to buy some yeah, well, um, sorry. It's oh, I, 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 sorry, I, 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 haven't, I haven't really got into the meat of Jean-Pierre Melville. Oh, yeah. okay, fair enough. Uh, Jean-Pierre Melville, obviously the, uh, the French um, director responsible for films like uh, Army of Shadows, uh, Bob Le Flambeer. The Samurai. The Samurai. You know, an incredibly influential crime thriller, you know, really set the template for... I will comment. Yes, I will comment, yeah, I will comment more on him on him after I've sort of you know I've been sent the Blu-ray collection to sort of plough for ploughing and it's all getting very to be continued. The um, the only thing that yes, so he made a film called Bob the Gam- um, Bob the Gambler, but in French it is Bob le Flambeur, which is the Frenchest thing you'll ever it's say. Just, it, yeah, and immensely more satisfying to say. Just often say it on my own just because it makes me laugh and it cheers me up. Bob le Flambeur, Bob le Flambeur, Bob le Flambeur. <laughs> if you're not at home right now saying Bobla Flamboo, then you don't have a heart. <laughs> so yeah, sorry. Um a film that you have seen. Suburbicon. Suburbicon. Um directed by George Clooney, starring Matt Damon, Julianne Moore. Oscar Isaac based on a uh, a ninety script by the Cohen Brothers. It's very Cohen light. It's it's Cohen Brothers without the bite. And it feels very, it very feels very early Cohen. Cohen. It's set in the 1950s. It's a 50s style satire, and it's set in this very artificial, wholesome community. It's sort of like, um, you know, does it feel like a bit of like the uh, the Hudsucker proxy to it? Or either, or even sort of, you know, um, the suburbs from Edward Scissorhands. You know, sort of, wow, that, sort okay. of you know, very sort of that 90s artificiality of of those sort of very specific settings that are intended more as allegory than as. An actual place. It's not Fargo because Fargo yeah. feels like a place where actual people live. Yeah. Um, and the film is about uh, well, Matt Damon's character who, play, who plays a character called Gardner Lodge, who's this mid-level exec, and he's he's very resi- he's got he's he's just Matt Damon feels a bit miscast because there's a sense of just resentment, and he's very unlikable. And he clearly he's very comfortable. He lives a very comfortable life, but he's clearly unhappy in it. And he's uh, there's a scene in the trailer where he's working those sort of hand presses like those uh, like doing those hand exercises with so the things that build up your they build up yeah your hand muscles yeah and, and sort of and he's basically he basically feels like he's, he's doing that all the time he's sort of perpetually clenched um, and his wife is killed in a home invasion at which point you know all these uh, shenanigans start coming up involving these hired goons who look like you know one of them looks like the Zodiac Killer another one looks like he stepped out of in cold blood right and there are all these influences feeding and I mean George Clooney you know, clearly he's he's a big Hitchcock fan. There's a scene where the 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 son, their son, uh, his son, uh, enters the um uh, enters the police the room of the police lineup despite having been forbidden to do so, and sees his father you know do something that causes this you know this utter drawing this horror to dawn in his face and the camera does a Hitchcock zoom in. It's one of those moments of style that's actually really effective. Yeah. But the thing is, the film itself is so it doesn't commit to anything. 
it's you know it's got a bit of it's got a bit of Cohen, it's got a bit of Hitchcock, and it's got a bit of sort of you know um, commentary on you know the um, the insidious nastiness that's lurking underneath these like these manicured lawns. You know, there's a it's a black family who moves into the neighbourhood and they become you know persecuted by this you know, this woman hanging out laundry where this mob is jeering at her. Right. And it almost feels like those elements have been added since in order to be more topical, but they never really it never really they never becomes part of the whole. It never really feels like it builds to anything. And it's a film that you're watching, you're kind of very aware of, almost beat for beat, you're watching it and seeing how the Coen brothers might have done it playing out alongside. Yeah. So you're like, okay, that's how they would have done that moment, that's how they would have done that moment. And the film would have been much more interesting in the 90s. It would have been kind of like, appreciated, like, but lesser, it would have been lesser Coen, but a film that people would have pointed out and gone, that was really interesting. And kind of looking at it and going, yeah, Matt Damon doesn't quite work. What if it was... Um, like a Tim Robbins, what if he was doing it around the time he did Hudsucker Proxy and he brought a, so a bit of that sort of G. Willikers wide-eyed yeah. charm to it? Or what if uh, Jeff Bridges had done it with a touch of like the goofy All-American? And there's a character in there of an insurance investigator played by Oscar Isaac, and watching that you're like, well, that's clearly John Polito. That is the John Polito role, the sort of mustachioed, slightly sheepish, you know, but you know, very tenacious. Yeah. And yeah, essentially it's... Fine. It's just I don't think George Clooney just you know he, I thought his first two films I thought um, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind which is about Chuck Barry who was on the Gong Show and it was kind of the first it was the breakout role for Sam Rockwell yeah and uh, he was on the Gong Show and claimed to be a CIA agent and um, and there's also um, Good Night and Good Luck which starred David Statham as um, oh the news uh, the news uh, oh what is his name yeah, why is his gone, why is his name gone out of my head um, but whose sign off yeah. was Good Night and Good Luck oh come on. Um, uh, we'll, we'll, dub, we'll dub it in later. We'll uh, we'll have me confidently. Uh, God, let's have a look now. Who was it? Who? Monroe. Monroe. Yes. Monroe. Um, something Monroe. Um, yes. Let's have a look and see. Uh, yes, it was Monroe, wasn't it? Matt Monroe. Uh, good night. And good luck. Let's see. <laughs> Marilyn Monroe. It was Ed, Edward Edward R. Murrow. Murrow. Oh, that's right. God. Yes. Took us a while, um, but um, yeah, and those films, but those films committed to style. You know, the, the first of you know. Confessions had a slightly psychedelic feel to it. You weren't; it was a very unreliable narrator, so you weren't quite sure. And the, the dislocation worked with it. And uh, Good Night and Good Luck was black and white, very telejournalist, very sort of, you know, also very period journalism, very down the line. And his projects since then, like The Monuments Men, haven't committed in the same way. They've just kind of gone. I, I describe Clint Eastwood as being a, a journey, like a workman-like director, or like a, a and George Clooney is a hobbyist director. And it sounds very cruel to say, but. He's, he's making these films because he can and because he enjoys doing it and because he's friends with Matt Damon and because he can get Julianne more involved in like a multiple role. And, int- yeah, that's... That, and he that's clearly enjoys that. doing it. And But you clearly feel that, you know, it was one of those things, you know, you'd shoot your scenes for the day and like, you know, like they used to say back to the would you know, get to three o'clock and you go, you know, let's go, so I'll go hit the links. <laughs> yeah, Leatherheads, I never saw that one. But The Eyes of March, which was the political thriller with Ryan Gosling to bring it back to Blade Runner. Um, and... And George Clooney, of course. Clooney, yeah. It was like, again, it was one of those where it's interesting that you call him a hobbyist director. Because I think you're right. I think it is one of those where he'll just knock a film out every every couple of years or every few years. He'll do a film. I mean, it's yeah, kind of. Three year rotation. It is. It's every three years he makes a film. And it's like, why did you choose this film? This doesn't seem like a story that you had to tell. Why is it this film? I mean, this almost feels like he was talking to the Coens because obviously he's a repeat Cohen collaborator at some point. And they mentioned a script they never made in the 90s. And he just went, oh, that sounds interesting. I'd quite like to see that. Yeah, let's have a look. And I don't quite agree with you with Clint Eastwood because I think Clint Eastwood is one of the great filmmakers. And I 
much. Sorry, I'm, I, I'm talking. In all fairness, I'm talking later period Clint Eastwood. I'm talking so everything. <laughs> everything was sort of like hereafter on. Everything after Gran yeah. Torino. Yeah, did I? Where he I clearly just completely agree with that because he the Gran Torino and the Changeling, and I think that's his last. They're his last two great films, or Changeling. Sorry, um, his last two great films. Then you look at things like Invictus and Sully and, and American so. Sniper and oh yeah, kind of the American Sniper didn't he as well. Which is a, that is an interesting film, that because that is about America's obsession with with guns. And today, as we're recording this on the fourteenth of November, there's been another school shooting. It really, the I... and there's kind of uh, three kids that we know of have been killed. Although it's probably more because I've actually watched the news for a couple of hours. So I think that, that was an interesting film because of its. It was all about America's obsession with guns. Um, but no, you're right. I, I think the yeah the later Eastwood isn't as good as early Eastwood. But you're absolutely right about Clooney. There is no reason why he would make Suburbicon or Monuments Men more than he would make any other film that comes out. Because like, what what was it about this story that you had to tell as your as your next your directorial effort after three years? But anyway, so next one will be Justice League. Yes. Thank you very much. And thank you very much. Anything that you want to end on as a quote from any of the films from the prior again? Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, bon oui. Bon oui. As they say in France. Belgium. As they say in Belgium, that city in France. I'm just doing it to annoy you now. Brexiteer. <laughs>